1: Hello and welcome back to Chronic. As you may know by now, I'm Lucy Pasha Robinson, opinion editor at HuffPost and chronic illness sufferer. This is an anti-wellness podcast, because we won't be talking about hacking your health or green juice cleanses here. Instead, I'm chatting with a different guest navigating new and unexpected paths, exploring living well when they're chronically unwell. This week, I'm overjoyed to welcome gender discombobulist and accidental activist, drag queen and HIV advocate, Rory O'Neill, aka Panty Bliss. Welcome.
0: Thank you. Hi. Hi.
1: So today I'm definitely speaking with Rory
0: because you're, yeah yeah you're
1: not in panty in full <laughs> no. panty drag. So you're in full lockdown at the moment, struggling through.
0: Yes, I'm in Dublin and uh, we're in just going into the second week of a f- six week full lockdown. I should apologize in advance if you hear a cat and a dog in the background, which you probably will.
1: You're joining me today because you were diagnosed with HIV back in 95. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And obviously, the stigma, the conversation around HIV has changed a lot since then. But when I was doing research for this podcast, I was looking into some of the the misconceptions that are still out there on the web. So some of them, things like you could catch it by kissing, Mm. or you can tell by looking at someone if they have HIV, (laughs) or that it's, you know, predominantly a gay disease. How much of those things do you still come across today?
0: Still quite a lot of it. I mean, less it's than it used to be, of course. But, you know, Twitter <laughs> is one one of those things that exposes you to everybody. And um, so that's where I see some real, you know, ignorance still about it. And, uh, and, you know, people who have a problem with you for other reasons, you know, they'll try and use it as a stick to beat you with. I mean, thankfully, I don't know if I can say the majority, but most people in my world anyway... Um, are more up to date about things and, uh, you know, sort of know the situation. But of course, I, I live in a sort of a gay bubble, you know, and, um, and obviously I think the gay community will be, tend to be uh, better educated about the, you know, the advances in treatment and all that stuff. So um, I don't come across that kind of ignorance that often anymore, except online.
1: Are the misconceptions about HIV online mainly rooted in homophobia in your experience?
0: Oh, I think the vast majority of it is, yeah. I mean, I'd say almost all of that sort of ignorance and stuff is rooted in homophobia for sure. Um, And of course, one of the things, you know, and you sort of briefly mentioned it, the the perception of it as sort of being something that only affects, you know, gay men, that is is really, um, you know, rooted in there. There's two things about that. One is, you know, depending on the part of the world you go, you know, the perception is entirely different. Um... So I, I've visited a lot of HIV projects in Africa and Asia, and that, and, and there it's, um, it, you know, it's, it's very much women are sort of bearing the brunt of it. Um, and you'll sort of go to, you know, clinics. Uh, you know, it's, I've been to say clinics in Mozambique, and it's all you know young pregnant women. Um, so, so the perception in different parts of the world is very different than you know, our part of the world where it's very associated with the gay community. But even that but even that is a misperception because if you go to my clinic for example, yes, I you know, there are gay men there, but there are also lots of women, lots of, you know, drug addicts, just a, a whole range of people. So it's much more it affects a much broader sway of society than people think. Yeah.
1: Because I know when you were when you were first diagnosed, HIV really was a death sentence. And the kind yeah. of people that you came across in the waiting room then probably are quite different to the kind of people you see now.
0: Well, it's not just the people in the waiting room, it's the waiting room itself even. Um, so I was diagnosed in 95 and on my first visit I was basically told I had maybe around five years uh, to live or something. My first visit to the with the consultant, um, so she gave me all of the, the medical side of things and then I was immediately shunted to the next room where there's a social worker who's um, there to hold your hand because you're um now on this you know journey to death and it's like palliative uh,
1: and, care basically
0: yes and and then she was giving you all the information about how you know the various state benefits that would be available to you to make your dying more comfortable you know your blanket allowance and a fuel allowance and all this sort of stuff um and so it was very much geared towards death essentially and i uh, and in my, I go to the, the largest um, HIV clinic in, in Ireland um, and, he, and it is, was then, and even today still is actually, sort of hidden away at the back of the hospital because people are embarrassed to be going. And there's still this sort of shame about it. And, um, but, but back then in 95, the clinic had this just grim depressing atmosphere about it. You just saw people who were literally at death's door and so you'd go and you'd see there'd be a lot of people waiting um, and you'd see people who were you know, skeletal or incredibly ill-looking and you'd see people that you maybe saw every week for a long time and then you just stopped seeing them. So it was just this sort of, the death was just hanging over us constantly. Um, and so if you go there now, all these years later, because around 95 was when these, the you know effective drug treatments were just beginning to be developed um and so things have improved and improved and improved and improved Um, and and now like most people i just go to the clinic twice a year and and it's basically they just check everything's still going fine and you know you get your medication um and i take my one pill a day you know and get on with my life sort of but when you're in there now it has become just a dull, boring, ordinary clinic um, where it's just people just looking at their watches and you know, trying to get the, you know, get their bloods done as fast as they can and leave. And you know, the, this, even the staff, you know, they complain about the normal, ordinary things that staff and other clinics, you know, you're expecting about their rosters or the weather or whatever. Yeah. Whereas in 95, that wasn't the case because um, they had just much bigger, grimmer things to be complaining about.
1: And how much of the, was that atmosphere back in the 90s how much of that was compounded by the messaging I suppose around HIV because there were all the the kind of government ads saying mm-hmm. don't die of ignorance there was all the yeah. there was a lot of shaming I suppose involved as well with the idea that you could potentially contract HIV yeah. how much did that kind of compound that already really difficult experience
0: massively because um on the one so I was diagnosed I was in my I think I was 26 or 27 or something and then you know for a 26 or 27 year old to go along to your GB you know and in my case completely unexpected to be told you know you're HIV positive and you know and you've got a couple of years to live um, that is hard enough but then at that time especially and to some extent still but certainly at that time what made it you know exponentially worse was the fact that uh your your death and your dying was going to be sort of hidden and sort of shameful and uh things like you know your family would would be wouldn't want to be speaking about it openly uh they wouldn't it's not like in a normal circumstance if somebody was dying of leukemia or something all the neighbors would like would be like you know Oh, you poor thing and you know, to my mother and talking about it and you know all of that, because the shame and the stigma around being HIV positive was so enormous and the fear around it um that people wouldn't talk about it and people did want to keep it a secret and and people were afraid would be afraid to touch you and uh, you know to share you know a, a meal table with you so um so the the death associated with it was really Uh, lonely and sort of grasping and and marked if you know what i mean um so and 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 in lots of ways i think that uh, well first of all that contributed to a lot of the deaths because people didn't want to get tested or they got tested and then and never went you know back to the clinic for treatment and everything because they were so afraid of all of that um
1: Because, I mean, it is important to say that those campaigns, they were the first to actually bring the problem to national attention, I suppose. Yeah. They were effective in spreading awareness, but also put the absolute fear into into everyone and massively stigmatized the people that were diagnosed.
0: Absolutely, they did. Like, I have such clear memories of those ads with John Hurt doing the voiceover and the tombstones falling over and all that. Yeah. And no, they really put the fear of God into people. And um, I understand what the, you know, what the motive was behind it and why why they did it. But it had this horrible knock-on effect of uh, making pe- people, um, you know, much more fearful than they needed to be. Because actually HIV is pretty hard to catch. <laughs> you know, it's not like COVID or something. Um, <laughs> there was never... Um, a fear of catching HIV from casual contact or from just hanging out with somebody or, you know, drinking the same cup with somebody. Um, That's not how it it works. Um, And yet that is what people were afraid of. It's so terrified people that it stopped people getting tested because people didn't want to know. The the one thing that needs to happen is people who are living with HIV need to be open about it. Because because most people to this day still imagine um, that HIV is not in their lives. Um, and uh, and that is not true. <laughs> um, mo- you know, everybody knows people who are living with HIV. You just don't know it because those people don't feel that they can tell you.
1: That's so interesting because it's not something, I mean, v- probably very ignorantly of me, um, in my, you know, I'm a heterosexual woman, cisgender woman, but I, 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 did, I wouldn't think that I would know anyone really uh with with HIV
0: well I'm here to tell you you absolutely do you absolutely do like if you go to my clinic it's it's, it's, every kind of person is there and they come from you know big cities and small villages and and one of the things the reason that I'm quite passionate about the whole you know stigma side of things is because um you know I you know might be on the, in the radio or the TV here and especially when I say World AIDS Day or something, it'll come up or you'll come up with another context and I you know, will talk about my experiences of it. And and I'm always very aware then that for the next few weeks, I'm going to start getting emails and you know letters or whatever from people that I don't know, total strangers um, who are writing me to tell me that they're living with HIV and they're, they're reaching out to me because they've never told a single soul ever in their lives. You know, they've never told a family member, they've never told a friend, they've never told a co-worker. And to them, it is this massive, huge, psychological millstone around their neck that's slowly killing them. It would be very different for me if I was living in a small town, rural town, I was working in the local factory and playing on the local football team. um, Then it would be incredibly difficult, I think, for me, to be open about living with HIV.
1: So when you were first diagnosed, how did that come about? Did you have symptoms or were you going for routine testing?
0: I, um, so I was like 27 um, and I, my my memory of it is that I was sort of maybe feeling a little generally unwell, um, but I hadn't, it wasn't something that I was taught, oh, this is a possibility, Um, I'm not just stupid and young or whatever, but. Um, I wasn't expecting anything and I just went to my GP and he did some blood tests and one thing came back with, I think it was, you know, a low, uh, platelet count. And I remember him sort of just sort of saying, um, oh, well, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why that could be. Um, so we'll just sort of look into a few of those and, um, and we'll do a HIV test as well. You know, that's one of the many possible reasons, but, you know, and, uh, so he did the HIV test, but I still wasn't concerned, um. And then he called me a few days later when the results came back, whatever. And he asked me, I always laugh about this because he asked me to come into his office at 5 p.m. And I didn't know then, but I know now that that's a really bad sign.
1: Oh, really? <laughs> because,
0: well, because he doesn't <laughs> want you to come in at 2. Um, and then he tells you in your office that you're you know, HIV and you've got a few years to live or whatever. And he doesn't want you to be this blubbering mess in his office while he has, you know, some owl one sitting outside, wait, outside. Yeah, waiting. <laughs> so so he's called me in at five. And, um,
1: Luckily, walked, you didn't
0: know. Uh, yeah, no, I know. <laughs> um, and I sort of go over to his office and uh, I go in. And it's funny because um, I have such a clear memory of this part of it. Um, and I still have the same GP to this day. And um, and he's really sort of a nice guy. Uh, you know, he's, you know family man, he has a couple, you know, two children and they were very small at the time and he'd have like the picture of his kids on his desk and he's like, a little plump, um, but he likes to ride and he rides a motorcycle and he has like the leathers and everything. Um, <laughs> and he's just a very nice sort of fella. And, uh, and I can remember him sitting opposite me and I f- and he tells me, um, and I felt really sorry for him because I could see how uncomfortable he was and and the weird thing too is that i like i could i could could draw his office in minute detail for you now of that moment like where the desk his pen was on his desk and the drug company you know sponsored calendar thing and all that stuff because it's all just sort of you know like in an insta moment like a you know second like a freeze frame yes and um and I remember sort of also feeling just this weirdness where I became very aware of my body, this sort of infected thing I was sort of sitting in, um, and it, and I still can just picture that exact moment. Um,
1: Which sounds like a reaction of shock.
0: It is. It totally yeah. was. Yeah. But then the weird thing is, you know, so but then what? He's just told you that, and then you know what do you do. And so you just have to just get up and walk out. And his office is, um, in Dublin, if anybody knows, Grafton Street is one of these old, kind of the fancy shopping street, or used to be anyway. And it always has traditionally has these like flower sellers on it, you know, these old Dublin ladies are. And I walked out of his office and I had to cross that street and it was like a really lovely sunny afternoon. And I'm sort of walking along and I passed by one of these flower sellers and she just nods at me and smiles, you know, because. I lived in and around that area, so she just knew me as a face. She doesn't, I didn't know her name, she didn't know, and she nodded at me, and I just, I, I felt like just screaming at her, you know, I'm fucking dying, because I was angry at all the other people on the street, because they were all just going to, you know, catch the bus home, and they were just going about their lives as if it was a totally ordinary day. But it absolutely wasn't a fucking ordinary day, you know? And, and that just made me really angry for a minute. I just wanted to start screaming at everybody. Um, I didn't because, well, I'm very middle class and we don't make scenes.
1: <laughs> There's like a cruel normality, I suppose, in these situations as well of like, OK, I've just been handed this like massive news and I've been told I have much like very long to live, but I still need to go and take the washing out and I, yes. I need to get some milk.
0: And <laughs> People always will ask me, you know, or, you know. Sometimes they'll sort of ask me, you know, what have I learned? What did I learn from this experience? Because they think that something like that is going to somehow transform you, or, and I think they want me to say something like, oh, I learned to live each day as if it's my last, and stop and smell the flowers, or whatever. But that's not what I learned. What I always say is that I learned is that you know, the the real banal mundanities of life is what, what helps you to survive or forces you to survive, because. Even though the doctor has just told you that you've got this fatal illness and you're going to be dead in a couple of years and it's all going to be horrible and miserable, you still have to wash the fucking dishes. You know, you still run out of bin bags and have to go to the supermarket and, you know, get them. You, you, all of those things still have to, to happen.
1: That life carries on, basically.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah,
1: you don't see that in the Hollywood movies,
0: do you? No, you don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: So who did you tell when you when you found out?
0: Well, at that time, I was living with um, uh, two friends of mine, a couple, and they were, you know, they're a gay couple. And uh, like myself, they were under no illusions as to what it meant. And we'd gone to, you know, various uh, AIDS funerals together. You know, we, had, we knew people who had died in horrible, miserable circumstances. So we were very aware of what it all meant. And I told them immediately, like, I, you tell them that... And and then, you know, what do you say then? You know, they knew me well enough t- to just make bad jokes, you know, um, <laughs> because what else can you do? Well, over the next year, I was pretty open about it. Not, and sometimes people now try to, you know, uh, say that I was brave or something. And that isn't the case at all. And I'm, you know, I have a big mouth and I, I would not be able to tell people. But also it felt to me like a sort of a, a second coming out all the time. Like you have to tell people this thing and maybe it's a few months after I've been diagnosed and I'm sort of getting my head around it but but I have to let them have their 10 minutes of big oh my god you know it's just it's tiresome (laughs) but I didn't tell my parents um for about a year I I knew I would have to tell them because I I knew that from just coming out as gay you can't hide these things from people you're close to you or you turn your family into acquaintances if if you know what I mean um if you know if I hadn't told my parents that I was gay or that I was living with deja these massive huge things that were hugely parts of my life you know if I'm keeping that secret from them in a sense I'm keeping myself secret from them, I would have preferred to tell my parents a hundred times over that I was gay than to tell them this well first of all, it seems cruel you know to I think it it's sort of against the natural order of things for a parent to see their child die and i so it feels cruel to be telling them that, and then also because I had, you know, assimilated a lot of the shame and the stigma that was, you know, around uh, living with HIV at the time, and um, and also because, you know, when I told my parents that I was gay, I could sort of rationalise that in the sense that this is nothing to do with me, in a sense. I didn't ask to be gay. I didn't, you know, when I was younger, I didn't even want to be gay. I'm, I've changed my mind about that now. But at the time, um, and so telling them that I was gay, it was just like telling them a fact that was outside of me. It was just like, so I have blue eyes. Um, I didn't, you know, so I wasn't sort of, I didn't, I didn't feel guilty about it in, in that sense because there was nothing I could do about it. Whereas in, uh, I didn't, Whereas HIV wasn't sor- some sort of intrinsic part of me, I something I did along the way or didn't do along the way, whatever, ended up with me living uh, getting HIV. I did, you know, feel this guilt about it. Um, but it was your
1: fault, basically. That,
0: that yeah, no, I, I had taken on that sort of you know stigma around it. Um,
1: and did you expect them to think that as well? Did you expect them to think he's brought this on himself?
0: Yeah, I think there was a part of me. That fear that part of them would might would think that because because in in some ways it's true in a sense, um, but and there's a
1: specific shame as well to it being a, a sexually transmitted
0: totally disease. Yeah, and, yeah. and just the general thing of you don't want to ever talk to your parents about you know the icky stuff you know so yeah and that's just always there you know in, in those <laughs> conversations I never doubted that my parents you know were going to continue loving me and all that stuff. Um, and I had seen people who died alone because their family disowned them over it. And I knew that that was not going to be me. My parents are are, are, are fabulous. I also knew I was bringing this awful thing to them and they didn't deserve that. And I, 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 I felt horrible about it. And, but the reason I waited a while was two reasons. One is I wanted to be able to get my head around it, you know, so that when I was telling them, I wasn't, in, you know, messed up about it. But also... Um, I wanted to have the answer to any question that they might have about it. And so by the time I did tell them about a year after my diagnosis or so, I was a fucking world expert on <laughs> HIV and HIV treatments and all that stuff. Um, I read everything I could get my hands on. I annoyed the doctors at the clinic all the time, you know, trying to get all the information but, and and i when i went to my parents i had a full like glossary of terms in my head and you know and
1: by then i think the the prognosis wasn't as bad either right after a year so
0: when i was diagnosed i was diagnosed right on the cusp of when the finally an effective treatments were being developed and um and actually at my very first visit to the clinic and and talk with the consultant she actually said to me uh, you know there are some new uh, drugs being developed and early results are promising. And uh, I didn't believe that at the time. Um, well, I've why not, would She's you? just saying yeah. that to give me something. And, and there'd been a lot of false dawns up till then. And I've asked, actually asked her since, and she says that she didn't really believe it either. <laughs> um, wow. Uh, but, but it turned out to be true, actually. And, and when I left my clinic, the, that first visit... I literally have like a, a plastic shopping bag, you know, a carrier bag, a Tesco bag, whatever, full of 38 different medications. But over the years, they got, you know, I, I went from 38 medications to 32, then to 28, then to 20, you know, always improving until, a, God, I don't even about 10 years ago now or something. It was right down to one pill a day.
1: And so now, yeah, you're down to one pill a day. So it's a, it's a huge transformation, I suppose, from how you were... Living probably, I imagine you were very aware of being ill and trying to control it. Well, I tell you
0: what it is: is that it's funny because, um, in a way, I never became ill from HIV or AIDS, um, but for years um, I felt really ill all the time as uh, because of the, all the side effects of the various drugs they were giving me, and. I'm not one of those people who's, you know, going to be going off on doing a carrot juice diet and trying to, you know, fix myself that way or whatever. I, give me all the drugs, and I'm going to take them. <laughs> um, I was aware that I was feeling sick, not because I had developed, um, you know, gone on to develop AIDS. I was feeling sick because of all of these drugs, which to me felt like poisons. There were loads of times where I would, you say, come home. And I opened the fridge and my fridge is half full with just medications and everything. And just the, the constant wear down of all the side effects and the drugs and everything, and sometimes it just get overwhelming and too much and I would just sort of like, you know, slump down onto the floor crying about it. And there was a small part of me that always somehow believed that I wasn't going to die of it. And that... A bit of stubbornness in me helped me to continue taking all those drugs when I really didn't want to
1: I think if, if you're dealing with any kind of chronic condition especially if it's something that that is uh, life-threatening or life impacting then um then r- resilience is just absolutely vital isn't it yeah. how else how else do you get through so I know you describe yourself as an accidental activist um, it's something that you 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 didn't choose to to do but you ended up there but have you always been so sort of right on in your conversations about HIV how was that a work in progress for you ridding yourself perhaps
0: yeah no I'm sure it was in the early days I, I definitely had taken on the sort of general stigma and shame around it and and that added to the to my own you know struggles and you know the pain in the assery of it um and and it took me a while to really think through all of that um, and sort of throw off um, the majority of that uh, stigma and weirdness around it. And so like, I don't know what I would have been saying to you for sure um, back in 1996, if we were having this conversation, but I'm sure if, if there was one and we went and look back at it, I'd probably cringe at some of the stuff I'm saying um, because because everything is this sort of learning process as you go through and, um, And you know, it's funny because even now, occasionally I'll feel a little sting of shame or embarrassment about it, depending on the situation, and I have to sort of give myself a stern talking to. um, Like, if it comes up incredibly casually, out of the blue somehow, like you're talking to a taxi driver and something, whatever, I can't, you know, somebody says something and it suddenly, it feels appropriate that you have to sort of say or explain something. And so even at times like that, sometimes even now, I'll feel a little ickiness about it. And I have to sort of give myself a little snap out of it. I think if you are telling a taxi driver that you're living with some other condition, um, you, you may not, you may hate it for all sorts of reasons, but, but one of the things you're not probably worried about is that the taxi driver is going to sit there blaming you for it. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, if you say you've got diabetes or something... Poor, poor you, you or whatever.
0: Yeah. Whereas... There's always this thing with HIV that you don't know is the taxi driver sitting there thinking, oh, well.
1: Are they going to you know, be making judgments about my lifestyle? Yes. Do they have oh, certain misconceptions? what did he do to
0: deserve about, that? Or, yeah. you know, punishment from God nonsense can come up too and everything. Punishment so, um, from
1: God, wow, yeah. I want to talk about uh, the... Ethics of disclosure, I suppose. We're at a point in, in terms of what we know about HIV that that there are drugs that mean that you can be completely undetectable. Uh, you can live with this virus and it n- not have any impact on your life and there'd be no risk of transmitting it to a partner. Do you still think it's important to speak out?
0: So was, there was a long time after my diagnosis where, you know, sex and romance and all that just was not on my horizon at all. And then I, I really, really clearly remember... The first time that I did have sex with somebody after my diagnosis, and I didn't tell him. Now, we had safe sex and everything. And then afterwards, uh, I was just like so, um, in in my head, I was having this huge drama about it. And I sat up in the bed and blurted it out to him. I had no idea how he was going to react. It turns out he was totally lovely and um 30 years later we're still great friends (laughs) um (laughs) uh, nowadays i have absolutely no qualms in saying no it's none of anybody else's business and you don't have to tell them because if you're on treatment and you're under you have an undetectable viral load i don't want to dump all these terminology on people but essentially if you're on uh, treatment nowadays you can't pass it on u equals u is what we say undetectable equals untransmittable everybody knows people are living with HIV. You just don't know it because those people don't feel that they can tell you. And so, for me, I feel that um, it's imperative that people like me, who can relatively easily be open about it, absolutely have to be. Because because then I think, you know, when people are open about it and sort of come out, because it's the same thing, like, as coming out as gay, it, you know, when I come out... It makes a little bit more room behind me for somebody else to come out, and and there's a kind of a domino effect. The stigma is the part that is actually damaging people, and um, and also it it um it also stops people getting tested and all of that because people are afraid of what the results might be and they're ashamed to be seen going into the clinic and all of that stuff. The
1: uh, the HIV won't kill you, but the stigma will.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely, I I think that's true. About five years ago. A a friend of mine, you know, a young, fit man, he was diagnosed positive and yet the stigma and the fear and the weirdness around it was still so powerful, even five years ago, that this, you know, 30-something-year-old man who knew, he knew the actual facts, and yet the fear and the stigma was so much that once he got his diagnosis, he never returned to the clinic. And so he never went back to get, and started on treatment. He never took any treatment. And by the time he ended up back in hospital, he was so sick, they couldn't save him. And his death devastated the clinic. And it was doubly hard because it was so unnecessary. And in his case, stigma and shame killed him, not HIV. It turned something That nowadays, thanks to the wonders of modern science and medicine and, you know, incredible people who've, you know, developed all of these treatments and drugs and hard work over the years, now is something that I can treat so very lightly. I get up in the morning, I have my breakfast, I take the pill and... While I'm taking that pill, I'm not even thinking about it. I'm not sort of thinking, this pill is saving my life. I often sort of have to sort of, oh God, did I take the pill or not? You know, like in the same way that you sometimes, you can't remember to brush your teeth. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, you know, because it's just all automatic pilot. And so it's something that I treat so lightly and I can go days and days and days without even thinking or considering the fact that I'm living with HIV because it's such a small role in my life where I felt hard done by for being HIV positive. Um, But my perspective on it now is very different. I look back and I think how lucky I was to be diagnosed when I was, right, you know, right on on the cusp of, you know, treatments being uh, developed. In a way, I feel like I'm a better person because of it. It it brought me into another world that, you know, if, if I wasn't, Gay, and if I wasn't hadn't been living with, ended up living with HIV. I think I might have been a real dick. <laughs> <laughs> I don't look at it as, as as something purely negative in my life anymore. There was a time when I would have, but now I, I I have a. It's more nuanced my 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 feelings about it. HIV and me have sort of found a way to rub along together fairly comfortably.
1: When you first found out in 95 that you were ill that acceptance didn't come immediately I mean that was that was a scary scary thing to hear so how did you get to that point where you figured out who you were who this Rory was with HIV how did you not get totally consumed by this really shocking dramatic diagnosis
0: well partly I didn't get totally consumed by by what we talked about earlier and these kind of the boring mundanities of life like um It's almost impossible to let yourself be totally consumed in some ways, um, or it's difficult to anyway, by by things, because uh, because the HIV, even at that time, it was a huge part of me in my life, but it still wasn't the only part of me in my life. There were times, for sure, where I felt like just giving into it all and and giving up, but I also wanted to go out dancing.
1: I I wonder how much um, the arrival of Panty Bliss uh, on the scene helped helped you kind of develop that. I think you describe it as a no fucks given attitude.
0: <laughs> well, panty was around when I got HIV too, but um, I do think um, you know, without being terribly facetious about it, or anything, you know, there is a th- drag. You know, the kind of you know gay world drag that I I do and come from. Uh, it is a kind of a superpower. It's uh, you know, it's like a. It's this armour you put on, and, and I made a very conscious decision uh, to make jokes about it in my act and on stage and all of that. To laugh at it, because I felt very strongly that, that it was a good thing to do. Well, because I think it's hard to fear something if you're laughing at it. <laughs> it sounds sort of weird, but I do think she did help me just get on with all of these, you know, that stuff because she is a bigger bolder uh, more brightly colored version of me and whereas I might sometimes you know in quiet moments over the time over the years have felt defeated by it and ended up on my kitchen floor in front of the refrigerator crying about it, Panty would never do that you know and and also, um, I had a—I don't know how long ago, a long time ago. Anyway, I—I I sat down and had a really hard think about how I wanted to be publicly about it, and I made a very conscious decision uh, to make jokes about it in my act and on stage and all of that. And um, I made a very conscious decision to laugh at it because I felt very strongly that the the fear and the stigma around it was amplified because everyone was afraid to even mention it. And so that definitely helped me personally, but I, 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 I very consciously made the decision to make all these jokes, you know, because it felt good to laugh about it. Because up until then, for me anyway, it had just always been this heavy darkness, um, and that made it feel heavier and darker. And once I was able to start publicly laughing about it, and, and the absurdities of it. Because, of course, there's all these absurd things that happen along the way with it. Um, it just made it easier. It, it made it, um, it, start, it, it turned it from being this huge bogeyman into something that was more realistic, um, that it was a part of my life, um, but not the only thing in my life.
1: In fact, last time we spoke, you said something that really made me think, and uh, you're... You're going to find this funny, but it was that RuPaul quote (laughs) that I love.
0: In a way, it's almost become one of my little life's models, and it has given me great comfort (laughs) over time in lots of different situations. And the quote simply is, what other people think of you is none of your business. And that has been, to me, that's a really powerful way of looking at at things because... um, you know, people will come at you with stuff. And if it's, if you're a gay drag queen with HIV, some of it is going to be horrible stuff. And also people will have ideas about you that you may be entirely off base or wrong, or whatever. Um, and you can allow that to bother you and you, you can go over it in your head and, and let it worry you and, you know, disrupt you, um and discombobulate you, um, or you can try and sort of rise above it.
1: I, I think it's, obviously, it's so relevant here when we're talking about a um, uh, a condition that carries so much stigma.
0: Because, well, also, because one of the things that annoys me about, um, you know, having a chronic condition or or living anything that makes you sort of out, slightly out of the ordinary is not only is there a pressure for you to be that perfect person with that thing, um, because you feel like, you know, you have to sort of, I don't know, represent or something. But there's also the thing where you, uh, you often find yourself in a situation where you're trying to make the other person feel comfortable around you and your condition or whatever. Um, and that always just really annoys me. Why am I feeling like I have to make them feel comfortable with me? I'm like I feel like I sometimes you are forced to take you feel an obligation which you shouldn't have to but you do take on this feeling of an obligation to make other to do the work of making other people feel comfortable when that's their work. Do you know what I mean?
1: You've come a long way since you were first diagnosed, I, and I think there's something quite specific about about living with HIV now, which means that you can, as you say, you can live with this disease that really is. In the past, obviously, it was extremely serious. It's still seen as, you know, it's still a disease that needs to be managed. But yeah. you can live more or less symptom-free in in yeah. lots of ways now. Do you see yourself as a chronically ill person?
0: No. And actually, was, I was about to just sort of bring this up with you because um, I seen in that way, uh, my story is probably very different from the other people you've spoken to because I don't is the truthful fact anymore. I often think about it like this little tattoo I have on my back. Um, I have this small ugly tattoo that I got when I was 18. It's on my back where I can't see it. And I sometimes go months without ever thinking or considering the fact that I have a tattoo. To be perfectly honest with you, I, I go long periods without thinking of myself as somebody with any kind of condition.
1: So I want to come on to our final question. This is something we ask all of our guests. And as you said, perhaps your case is going to be slightly different this week. So it'd be interesting to hear what, what you have to say about this. But I want to know, what does living well mean
0: to you? Living well, to me, means living without the constant stress or worry of it. Because for, you know, 15 to 20 years of my journey with HIV, that's what it was to me. It was this constant uh, worry, stress, um, work. I I mean, I take that little pill so lightly, but sometimes I think maybe I shouldn't because maybe I should be like, you know, doing a little bow to it every morning because it has, it transformed my life. And I, 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 I probably should be even more grateful than I am for that little pill.
1: Rory, I've got about another twenty million questions that I would love to ask you, but we're we're out of time. Thank you so 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 much for going through all my of that pleasure. with me. It was so brilliant to have you on, and I think your perspective offers your your story offers a really unique perspective, and it's brilliant to have that included in this full breadth of uh, discussions on on chronic illness and what that looks like.
0: Um, my pleasure, and uh, um, I hope if, if anybody's out there uh listening to this who is living with HIV and is feeling really f- fucked up about it. Um I hope they'll uh you know, take something from it um to sort of uh strengthen them to uh deal better.
1: So that's it for another week. Uh, If you enjoyed my chat with the wonderful Rory, you can email us your comments, thoughts, suggestions, and stories to chronic at huffpost.com. We absolutely love to hear from you. So please do get in touch. So many of you have already sent over amazing stories and messages. So, so please keep them coming. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at huffpostuk. And of course, please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.